Hey, everybody. Welcome back to episode three of a second season of the Bet On Yourself podcast. In this season, we are talking about the most frequently asked questions I receive from my consulting clients. These are CEOs from four different continents of completely different growth industries. And these are some of the issues facing them all. And I think this applies not only to CEOs, but most of us, because today's episode is about balancing ambition. So this has come up a lot because we're just starting to see a light at the end of this tunnel of the pandemic, and we're thinking about what we want our new normal to look like. So it's on our minds about how do we want to balance our ambition and feel like we have more control, more joy in our days, and are making sure that the way we spend our time reflects what we value most. I was listening to a podcast recently. Actually, I was re-listening to it because it's one I have saved to my favorites because I it has so many good tips. And it's um, an interview with Ashley Willens. She's the author of Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. <laughs> so obviously that sucked me in right away because that's what we want the most. And in her book, she really talks about having an honest conversation with ourselves about what we value most. Do we value time or money? So do you consider yourself time poor or time affluent? And maybe you haven't thought about it in quite those terms, but she gives some really great tips about how to evaluate that and to center ourselves around methods and priorities and strategies that bring us even more happiness. And she really points out that even just adopting the mindset of being time rich is essential. So if you're time poor, you feel like there is not enough hours in the day ever to get done what is most important and meaningful to you. And if we feel time poor, we are unhappy. We feel out of balance, we feel exhausted, we have overwhelm, we feel ineffective. But if we feel time affluent, that means we are focusing on a couple of key things. We're focusing ourselves on meaningful work and contributions, and this is different than being busy, right? Second is we're focusing on quality interactions, with our colleagues, with our clients, with our community, our families. And third, we are focused on deep, strong relationships. This for me made me realize that if I look at my behavior, I definitely feel time poor. And I also feel like the way I'm spending my time actually isn't reflective of what I value most. So there are some things we can do about it. First, we need to realize that productivity is not an equivalent to being busy. So we want to be um, more proactive than reactive on how our time is spent. And this is something that I coined the term of, well, working at Google, where I really um, focused on not absorbing someone else's false sense of urgency. Now, for me, a false sense of urgency is when somebody has something that for them is the most urgent and pressing, and they try and hand that off to you. But for you, it might not even be important, let alone urgent. So how do we keep that from trumping everything else that our well-laid plans of how we were going to spend our day? So we need to focus on our trade-offs. I have a mantra. You've heard me say it before, but I firmly believe that our work should give as much to us as we give to it. Anyone listening to this podcast called Bet on Yourself, I imagine you're like me, where your work brings you a lot of meaning and you want to do it well, you want to be recognized for it, but what do you want in exchange? Will that hard work give you what you value most? And in uh, the previous sessions of season two, we've talked about setting those values, your vision and mission statement for yourself so that you know what you're trying to receive. 
So this might be an opportunity to gain new knowledge and experience. It might be a trade-off of time well spent could be access to leadership that you really admire. It might be leaning into an innovative environment that maybe has intimidated you and you'd like to get more comfortable in or an opportunity to increase your influence. These are all ways in which your hard work is giving you this exchange. It's giving you what you value most and that lifts you up and that helps you feel time affluent even when you're working really hard. So how do we practice work-life balance or perhaps work-life integration? So the truth is I think across our careers, we probably have three pretty big chunks of time that come into different life stages. So when I was young and just starting out my career, I had low uh, outside responsibilities. Um, that's kind of when you can be an independent contributor. You don't have the responsibilities of maybe a mortgage or young children, and you can really dive headfirst into your work if that's meaningful to you. So early in my career, I volunteered for nearly everything. I wanted to get noticed. I wanted to be consistently available and seen like a core contributor. And um, that worked really well. But then later we'll come to the second stage of life when we need to set some reasonable boundaries around that. So as you know, my very first job after university was working for Jeff Bezos. And Jeff is absolutely somebody who believes in work-life integration, not necessarily work-life balance. And that has worked for him over the long term, over the last 20 years, because honestly, there is nothing more enjoyable to him than his work. Now, not all of us have that luxury. Not all of us have designed our companies around our passions and talents. Some of us have work that isn't aligned with how we want to self-identify. But there's still some things we can do um, to get that semblance of control back. So for me in this environment, I loved it. I loved being with Jeff. I, I adopted this work-life integration. I volunteered for everything. I wanted as much experience as possible. And an example of that was Amazon War Rooms. So War Rooms is a terminology we use in tech companies where you have something so urgent that must be accomplished um, that you literally get locked into a conference room and don't leave until it's fixed. So this can be a code red when maybe there's been a security issue and it needs to be fixed immediately, or this is a go-to-market urgency where you need to beat a competitor into the space, or you've got a critical launch coming up that absolutely has to be accomplished. So I saw these war rooms going on and I figured that this was where the most exciting things in the company were happening. So I was willing to do anything to have exposure to that room. I was willing to do intern level things, including like midnight food orders or basic research assignments or working with facilities to be sure the lights and the heat were automatically shut off at night in the building or on the weekends where we were working. I didn't care. I just wanted to be, have access to that room and um, be part of watching history being made. All that mattered to me was that I could be helpful and this gave me my ticket into the room where all of this was happening. Now, I also didn't learn my lesson. I continued this behavior when I started at Google. Um, the first couple of years were pretty crazy. Maybe, I was just talking to a client today where he was really surprised to hear that back in 2006 when I joined Google, we were very much still making things up as we went. Um, it wasn't as perfect and shiny as it appeared from the outside. So in 2008, we had a couple of very critical launches happening all back to back to back. And the entire team was working an average of 15 hour days just to get everything done and to hit multiple product launches in a very time, tight timeframe. At the time, I was still living in Berkeley, where I'd been living while doing my PhD, and I would take the Google shuttle to and from work. 
So I would jump on the very first shuttle at 7 a.m. from uh, Berkeley, and I would take the very last shuttle home, which was at 9.30 p.m. It was an hour and a half commute each way in addition to the hours I was spending in the office. And I have to admit, it was not unusual for me to miss the last shuttle of the day and need to borrow one of the Google fleet cars, which were available for employee use during the day for like doctor's appointments or other errands you needed to run if you had taken the shuttle in and didn't have transportation with you. And it was also often that we were in the office or at a minimum on our laptops from home for a full day on a Saturday just to keep our heads above water. And um, so it got so extreme during this time that the city of Mountain View actually cracked down on Google um, at the time. And they told us at headquarters that they were going to have to recategorize us as a hotel because so many of our employees were literally sleeping are living full-time in the office. They saw no need to be paying these steep rent prices for an apartment that they never saw. We had showers in the gym, we had laundry facilities in every building. Uh, when combined with the free food on campus, it really removed any need to ever need to go home. So we literally had to make a rule that employees couldn't sleep at the office. So I had to remove a beautiful big red sofa that we had in the corner of our office for one-on-one -on -one chats into the hallways so that it would be a deterrent from sleeping in the office. But even then, people still slept on it occasionally in the hallway. So then I wised up and uh, that wasn't a sustainable pace for me forever. No regrets. Honestly, I learned so much in those early years and it was such a privilege to be at these companies at that stage. But the second stage of my career and my life was when I really needed to recognize that there were other priorities and demands on my time that I wanted to give some space to. And this was also a time in Google's evolution where um, in the early years of the company, the average age of our employers kind of tracked that of our founders. We were all kind of going through similar life stages at similar times. So when we all started, we were single, young, straight out of university, didn't really have commitments. But in the second stage, suddenly all of my peers were getting married at the same time and then having babies. And then we had to really find a new balance. How were we going to remain really innovative and working at this high pace while not burning ourselves out. So this is when we had to focus on the highest valued tasks to delegate wisely and setting some clear boundaries. So in 2008, I was working for Marissa Meyer and she had this great way of addressing this need. So she had conversations with each member of her team and she kind of developed an anti-burnout philosophy, which with each of them one-on-one. -on -one. She wanted to know from each person, what were their deal breakers? What made them unhappy? If they weren't able to do X, Y, or Z because work demanded them to be away from it, what would, what would that look like? So for example, I remember she had a direct report who had a young child and um, for her, her deal breaker was missing bedtime. She absolutely wanted to be there for dinner and putting her baby to sleep and having that cuddle time. And if she missed it, she got really upset. She got bitter, she resented her work, and that obviously was not going to um, lead to longevity. So Marissa really focused on saying, okay, we're gonna protect that at all costs. You're gonna consistently be there. But this direct report was owning a project based in Bangalore that meant she had calls at 3, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. pretty regularly. But for her, she was excited because she wanted to be home with her baby and have this uh, bonding time, but she also wanted to own a really high impact, high growth project. So she did not mind the 3 a.m. phone calls, but she did mind missing bedtime. So for her, that was her work-life integration. 
But as we move on in our careers, we really get to the part where we want to be thinking about our value impact and our legacy. And hopefully we all get to this stage sooner rather than later, but this is where we are setting our own priorities. And honestly, this is a big part of why I eventually left Google after 12 years and started my own company to become my own boss and focus 100% of my time around my personal values and what I want to contribute into the world. Although I am definitely discovering it's not as easy as that. It's easy for other people's agendas to, to still take over even in this environment. So we really have to take some ownership of our free time, our contributions, and make sure that even if you're in a role right now where you can't set the priorities or align all of your projects or assignments with your own personal values, we can find this maybe in some of our free time contributions, like volunteering for an organization that means a lot to you or reading a book that expands your understanding or views of the world or exposes you to new ways of thinking or even things of self-care like a meditation practice, something that really fills you up that you are fully in control of and can make sure happens for you every day. So this is about recentering ourselves on our purpose, our mission, and our legacy. Now, if you've heard me speak before, you know I'm a big fan of an economic principle called Pareto's Principle, where an economist has discovered that actually across the board, no matter what we're measuring, it seems to be true that 20% of our time leads to 80% of our results. So if we want to have more impact without being time poor, we need to eliminate some busy work. Essentially, a lot of these things that are passed on from others that don't belong on our priority list and don't map to our values. I was uh, meeting with a client last week actually, and she shared with me an analogy of passing the monkey. So um, she says that, for example, if you're a junior employee and you're facing a challenge at work, you can go to your manager and say, hey, this is really um, bothering me. I really need to fix this. And then you're passing the monkey to your manager, asking them to solve it for you. However, you probably get a better exchange from your manager if you first kept that monkey for yourself, did some research, had some proposed options, and came to them just for their reaction. Then it's easy for your manager to lean in and give you a quick gut check and advice where you haven't passed the monkey on to them and they are going to really lean into helping you with your problem. Now, on the other hand, if you are a manager and people are coming to you with all these problems, you really want to empower them and say, you know, you're a smart person, please um, come back to me with, with some ideas of what we could do next. So really teaching people how to treat you, how to um, interact with others and making sure that you are not taking the monkeys that don't belong on your back. And this is also really important as we start leading teams, if you're the CEO or a manager, making sure that when you delegate, you fully hand off that monkey. <laughs> you can't just kind of keep a leash tied to that monkey and expect someone else to carry it around all the time. We really have to fully delegate the authority level to that person to manage it the way that they see fit. Otherwise, we get divided into too many directions and um, we are not, our abilities of, for impact as a leader are really limited in the long run. So 
How can we know if we are time poor or time affluent? How can we be sure that our time is reflecting what matters to us most? So I suggest doing a calendar audit. And I was just um, talking with a client about this yesterday. Look at your calendar and literally do the math. How much of your time spent, maybe just look at the last week, how much of the time spent was in your comfort zone? Because I also don't want to say that like idleness is not ideal. None of us feel good being underutilized. None of us are truly happy when we have a complete lack of challenges and we're not growing. So that's not what we're solving for here. But what we are solving for is, does your time spent correlate with your values and core goals? Do you have time for learning? Do you have protected time for authentic connections with your community, your peers, your colleagues? Are you serving the greater cause that means the most to you? And you also wanna look and see if you are, for example, if a stranger came in and just saw your calendar, would they be able to reverse engineer what type of person you are and what matters to you most? I am not so sure that mine would pass this test at the moment because what matters to me most is um, my relationships with my family, with my community, with causes that mean a lot to me. And I can easily get so distracted with work, which is very value aligned, but it's only one aspect of who I am as a person. And I want to prioritize that time outside of just this office. So this is about pacing yourself and your team. So while I was at Google, we had this regular practice of what we called sprint challenges. And this is where we set a finish line, even if it was aspirational or even maybe a false finish line, but we would set a time because we were running so fast and we all know we can't sprint a marathon. So if we wanted to keep a team really gritty and engaged, we would have to set these finish lines where we would pause, we would celebrate our wins, we would evaluate the things we've learned, AKA some of our failures, and this is how you can replenish and get gritty again. My CEO clients, this is definitely a frequently asked question of like, how do I keep that grit while we're working at this pace for the long haul? And this is really my best practices, doing a sprint challenge, making sure you're celebrating, you're acknowledging all of this hard work and going back to this podcast recommendation, hot, let's make sure that we're rewarding the hard work with time. So if you're a manager and you're looking to really celebrate a contribution, or maybe you're just a friend wanting to really help someone out, if we reward people with time, they will value that much more than just a monetary gift. For example, if you're a manager, you could give a spot bonus for some really hard work that got you over the finish line for a critical project. But what's more meaningful, even if it's the same monetary equivalent, what's more meaningful to the person receiving it is, for example, you could give that same amount as a, a gift card to spend on dinner out with the family to save time and to acknowledge the time that was sacrificed on behalf of the project that they would have rather spent with their family. So when we frame these rewards of these values of helping each other out with an experience or with our time or giving them time back in their day, that really leads to some alignment and shows them true value. Um, recently, a friend of mine had a baby uh, quite prematurely and I just sent her an Uber Eats to her house and, or my sister was unwell and she's in Seattle. I'm on the other side of the world from her. I did the same. Just doing these little surprise gestures means a lot. Didn't cost a lot, but just saying like, I'm sure your time is better spent in healing or taking care of that sweet little baby. I want to give you something back so you don't have to spend an hour cooking or even thinking up what you want to eat. It's just there for you for when you want it. And then 
If you are on a team where you're feeling really burnt out or you see that you're about to miss a deadline, I encourage you to ask for more time. Give yourself permission to set some boundaries and set expectations early before you miss that deadline. And I've found that managers are very willing to help you to give additional resources or to give you a bit more time on a project when you call out early that something is um, much larger than you expected or you're needing some additional support. So give yourself some permission to, to ask for more time. And second, give yourself permission to outsource. So when I was on the final writing deadline for my book, which is the pre-sales coming out in just a couple months, it's very exciting. I was really, I was burning like the candle at both ends. I was blowtorching that candle. I had nothing left. I was trying to do this, my startup. I was trying to contribute in so many things and write a book that I'd never done before. And I realized my publisher gave me that little allowance that um, they gave me an advance for a reason. So I decided what I needed to spend that advance on was things that would give me more time back in my day. So I gave myself permission to do some meal deliveries, to do some laundry service, to outsource some admin tasks so that I could spend what little free time I had on things that filled me back up and brought me joy and allowed me to spend time with my loved ones while I wasn't writing instead of doing laundry or going to the grocery store or cooking. I love all those things, actually. I, 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 I've normally find a lot of joy in um, tidying my home. I'm kind of Marie Kondo sort of a person. It does spark joy for me. But in that, I just, I had to cry uncle. I could not do everything anymore. And I had to really be honest with myself on that. So my last tip for you is as you're trying to create this ideal balance for yourself, make sure that you protect time for inspiration. Now, when I talk to my CEO clients about ideal executive time management and delegating is uh, what they can and building up uh, their leadership and, and giving them opportunities to grow and freeing up their time and doing time blocking. They all come back to me in a panic after they've done that because then they've got these big chunks of open time and they are so used to being back to back to back to back every day of the week from morning till night that they don't know what to do with it. But the most important thing that we can do is protect some space in our day for inspiration. And I've learned this from the best. So some of the most influential executives I've been around are excellent examples of why we shouldn't just be busy and try and do more. That um, that can lead to burnout. It actually doesn't, it inhibits our ability to be a really effective leader. So for example, when I worked for Jeff Bezos, he would take a quarterly thinking retreat and he would go to a very sterile environment. He would go to a hotel room with nothing, just a blank Moleskine notebook and a flat pen that fit nicely into his back pocket. And he just cleared his mind of any outside stimulus until his, those ideas that had been percolating in the back of his brain had the opportunity to come to the forefront in this moment of pause. Eric Schmidt was really good at doing this, but he did it in a very, very different way. He would literally take to the skies. You know, he, he's a fully certified jet and helicopter pilot. And so having these extreme hobbies where he's in environments that are very different from a boardroom allows him to have these open big thoughts. He also used to host uh, global dinners all over the world. When we were in a different city, we would collect the smartest people we could find in that city and just have interesting conversations to spark some new ideas. And he would always do listening tours with our employees, with academics, with scientists, with all, anything that he wasn't normally exposed to, he would seek out 
um, because that is what brought him most inspiration. And uh, Bill Gates is also really famous for um, prioritizing this. He takes a giant uh, tote bag full of books to a cabin and reads in quiet. And the books he reads, he publishes um, his reading list. And they're about completely different, unrelated subjects. But for him, this really curates his mind, helps him to be ex um, exposed to new advancements in technology or different ways of thinking or questions that he should be asking himself for or how he wants to be contributing most to the world um, and use his resources for the greatest good. So there's no right or wrong way. But the most important thing, the common denominator here is protecting the space, protecting our time and making sure that we are in environments that inspire and enlighten us. That might be going for a run if that's meditative for you or doing a dance class or playing with the dog or jumping on the trampoline with the kids, whatever we have access to, but make sure that we protect a bit of time for what lifts us up. And that really enables us to balance our ambitions while we're constantly trying to do more, more, more. This helps us feel time affluent. Even when we're still very, very busy every day, that mindset makes it feel a little bit less daunting, a little less heavy. So that's what I want for you this week. I would love to hear your experiences with time blocking, with managing, what matters to you most and um, really share some best practices with the community here. So please subscribe, share this on social media and reach out to me and let me know what's resonated with you most. So go out there and make a big bet on yourself by balancing that ambition. <laughs>